Welcome back to hell. Um, today I'm going to be reviewing Oppenheimer, and my girlfriend saw Barbie, so no one else has to. So, yeah, stick around. And we'll be starting with Barbie, so take it away. Hi, everyone. I hope you all are doing well. Um, it's a pleasure that I finally get to be a guest on your podcast. It's very exciting. But yeah, I saw Barbie, so you didn't have to. Um, I have a lot of things to say about this film, particularly how it was very, um, how do I put this? You know, when I, f let me put it this way. I'll start from the beginning. When I was outside of that theater and I saw the preview picture, it said, she's Barbie. He's just Ken. So I thought to myself, okay, this is going to be like a very, feminine movie, kind of like Legally Blonde, Mean Girls, Clueless, etc. So when I went in there, I was expecting that specifically. And it was not like that in any way, shape, or form. At the beginning, there was hints of it, but it was Barbie. It was a very like stereotypical uh, wonderland of Barbie. It kind of almost reminded me of the movie Enchanted. Um, because, you know, there's the princess, then she goes into the real world, kind of like how Barbie went into the real world, um, so to speak. So whenever I saw that, I was like, okay, that's that. And then we get to meet Ken. Now, the thing about Ken is he does beach. <laughs> for the for you guys that have watched Barbie, you know that reference. But yeah. He will beat you off. Yeah. <laughs> he... <laughs> Sorry. That was funny. He like... He's on the beach and he just kind of watches Barbie. His goal is to kind of be with Barbie. Like that is his meaning of life. But as we get to know Ken throughout this film, we realize that there's more to than just being Ken and taking care of Barbie. It is to be yourself and to be authentically yourself, to not lead up to societal expectations or lead up to a person that you love the most. You cannot give every single bit and piece of your being just to provide and make somebody happy. That's not how it should work. So long story short, I believe that Ken, because he has the brain of, I'm just here to provide for Barbie, um, <clears throat> he's, a people, he's a people pleaser, 100%. So that's how I saw Ken. But then as the movie progressed, he like dramatically changed and he became extremely masculine because when him and Barbie went into the real world, he learned about masculinity and he learned about like trucks and like cars and that sort of thing. And he was very like, yeah, let's bring this back into Barbie land. So he so brought, he kind of soaked in the stereotypes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He, he, and then whenever they went back to Barbie land, um, Barbie was brought back differently. She ran away from the corporation that makes the Barbie dolls. Um, Whereas Ken, he just went back the way that they were supposed to go back, which is like through this weird pattern of like, swim through the ocean, go through this rocket ship, go on this car, ride a rollerblade. You see that throughout the film if you you know have seen all the details in there. Um, but yeah, that's how Ken got back. And then when he got back, he like told all the Kens in Barbie land. He was like, we're going to make this happen. I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. And then it became... Ken Dom or Ken Land. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it became a very masculine land. Um, and the thing that I realized about this movie was that the, anything that happened in Barbie Land, it echoed to the real world. So, for example, 
uh, when Barbie was like having breakdowns about the real world, they made like depression Barbies, which I thought was the funniest thing. Wow. Yeah, they made like <laughs> they made like um like introducing anxiety and depression Barbie. I would like to plug an ad for all of you depressed housewives out there. There is now depressed Barbie <laughs> stocked on shelves everywhere. Be advised and scoop as as many as possible. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it was that was probably one of my favorite parts of that whole movie was the depressed Barbie. But anyway, sidetrack. Um retailing at 24.99. <laughs> um and then whenever they turned it into Ken Land, uh everybody was buying Ken dolls in the real world. So it was like an echo off of that. Um so Barbie gets back to um Barbie Land and she sees the whole thing become like extremely masculine and she's like what? So she knows about the real world because, you know, plot speaking. She's been there. <laughs> plot speaking, she goes into the real world because whoever is using her as the Barbie doll, they're not in the best place mentally. So she goes into the real world to find the owner and she figures out who the person is. But I don't want to necessarily spoil it, um, if that's okay. You can go as in-depth as you need to. Um, or want to, I usually tend to put things out like a little while after they've come out so people have time to see them. Yeah. And so that I'm not likely spoiling stuff. So you can go ahead and say whatever you want. All right. Well, then this will be spoiler warning disclaimer. Um, She meets the owner and it turns out she thought it was a little girl who was in middle school who um, is very, very angsty and she firmly believes that what what she firmly believes that the company that makes barbie is fascist and it's also very like um sexist it's extremely sexist um and she was saying stuff like that you know because that barbie was made for women and how they made the brand messaging based on how women should be she believes that that's like extremely sexist she believes that like women should be more open and should be more um obligated to do whatever they want but barbie couldn't understand it she was like i don't understand i think that's what we're doing um and that's what i'm doing for you but she was like go away so (laughs) just you know being an angsty teenager but then she finds out that it's not actually the girl it's the girl's mother because the girl's mother is having a hard time trying to raise her daughter um trying to make her happy etc etc so that's what barbie realizes and she becomes sad she feels pain for the girl she feels pain for the mother and throughout the film she gets to realize like um how hurt this mother is and the thing about barbie is that because it's barbie land they don't feel pain necessarily they feel more like happy-go-lucky sunshine and rainbows unicorns and stuff like that like it's very like innocent it's all innocent story it's very toy story they don't feel pain unless it's something very serious like a, a lava furnace or you know a truck about to smash them but when they're beating each other up or falling off of shelves they <laughs> right? don't seem to feel much like pain unless they properly break like you know Woody's arms were ripping the whole series and he never really mm-hmm. actually seemed like he lost function so which speaking of that Toy Story 3 scared the crap out of me like I was like sitting there and I'm like they're gonna die we're gonna review the entire Toy Story series <laughs> as one yes let's do it <laughs> but 
yeah, going on with Barbie then. So she realizes that like the mother is kind of depressed and, and oh, mess, extremely, extremely depressed. Twenty four ninety nine. By the way, um, yes. If you're depressed. Grab a depressed yes. Barbie. Okay. So you have a, a friend. Also, fun fact about the mother: the mother is actually, I believe, the secretary um, for the Barbie franchise. And then throughout the film, Barbie gets to know the franchise, and she gets to meet the CEO, which is Will Ferrell. Um, now, when I first saw that part, I went, oh, you got to be kidding me, because a lot of women brands, they're owned by men, which I think, in my opinion, is a little, like, if you're going to sell women products, maybe a woman should own it, but that's just my opinion. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, you gotta be joking. Like, this is like, this is stupid. So it kind of further proves that stereotypical, like men own everything and women are getting paid less or women are a little lower, that type of thing. Like that's what, that's what went through my head. But then as I got to know the CEO of Barbie, I realized that he's really trying (laughs) and he actually has a good heart. So I gave him, does he have daughters or does he mention having kids at all not that i know of i don't He's... think he mentioned it but he did say that he like has a big passion to provide for people that buy barbie dolls like he wants to help girls that want to be themselves yeah, so and he even like addressed it in a sense of like um like oh yeah i want to help them but like not in a creepy way yeah. like he even said that in the film i think so i was like oh that's okay that's yeah but i would assume that like in a lot of cases, a lot of these movies, um, for example, uh, Saving Mr. Banks, uh, Tom Hanks played Walt Disney, and Disney kept trying to get the author of Mary Poppins to let him make a Mary Poppins movie because he said, like, my daughters, my daughters are this, my daughters are that. Like, they want to see her. They kept begging me to do it, so I made a promise to my daughter, so don't make me break that promise. Like, give me your character to make a movie out of. Right. So I was, I, I'm surprised, actually, he didn't say, like, you know, my daughter, you know, loves no, her. No, he... For her. He didn't say anything about that. He just said, like, it's more, okay, y'all have seen Elf, of course. Like, that's a that's an, an American Christmas classic. Like, everybody loves Elf. Mm-hmm. He kind of had that similar attitude in Barbie, but he was way more businesslike. So he was kind of like what would happen if Buddy... If Buddy had wasn't... The, ...had the traits of his New York businessman dad. Yeah. And, and wasn't spent, a piece of shit. Spent less, <laughs> spent less time in the North Pole. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was kind of like that because he had this like innocence about him. And you could tell he was like very passionate about what he did. It's just at first he was kind of hard to read. Um, and, you know, because he's the CEO, that's what made me have difficulty to understand him. But as the movie went further, he actually was kind of really funny. And he became one of my favorite characters um, because of it. Um, so, yeah. But they find out that Barbie is Barbie. Because they thought it was just a random girl, obviously. Um, and throughout society, which I will get to in a minute, um, they are like, oh my god, no, wait, that's Barbie. She went to the real world somehow. And Barbie's just like, I'm just here to help whoever is in trouble, and I'm here to just provide. But she also doesn't really know how the real world works yet. Like, she's still very confused. Um, so they kind of, like, try to, like, tell her to you can go back. And what they do is they try to put her in a Barbie box. But then she realizes, like, oh, wait, they might be trapping me. So she runs away. Then she meets this woman named, uh, I forget her name, but we'll get to her later. She is an older lady sitting in a kitchen. And she's like, hey, Barbie. 
And then she kind of tells her, like, where to go. And she's like, oh, all right. Sounds good. And they just have this little interaction. But then I realized at the end of the film, that specific old lady was the OG owner of Barbie. She was the person that made Barbie. She was the person that founded it. And then she got into some legal trouble, if I remember correctly. Yeah, her name is Ruth. I remember it's Ruth. Who was it? Yes, yeah, it's Ruth Handler. So she was portrayed very, very symbolic throughout this whole film. And you don't really realize it until near the end, but we'll get to her later. So basically, that interaction between Ruth and Barbie becomes very uh, pinnacle throughout the film. And then Barbie gets back and then she discovers Kenland. Now I got sidetracked there because obviously I want to tell you Barbie's timeline first. And then when Ken gets back, it becomes Kenland or Kendom, whatever you want to call it. So when Barbie returns back to Barbie land, it becomes a masculine shit show. It's like all the women are dressed up as waitresses serving beer to the Ken dolls. The Ken dolls are having Mojo Dojo Casa houses, as everybody says. Um, and Ken is just kind of like, he's kind of like a Jake Paul of sorts. Like, he's very like, yeah, this is my Mojo Dojo Casa house, which becomes, he takes over Barbie's house. Now, the thing I'd like to make a note of in this film is that because when it was Barbie Land, Barbie Land was very feminine, and all the girls, they had girls' nights, they had dance parties, and Barbie, her house was, like, the hot spot. Like, all the girls would dance there, and, you know, that's where the dance, dance the night away, like, that song came in. So whenever uh, Ken would go hang out with Barbie, he would try to, like, riz her up and make a move on her, saying, like, hey, let's have, like, a sleepover. And one of the funny parts she says was, and do what? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> because they're dolls. They can't, they can't form, like, non-innocent things like they're they're virgins they're not um how do i put this they're just innocent people they just they can't they can't think like humans can so i just thought that was a little bit funny to me but yeah long story short barbie was like well i have a girl's night i can't really can't really come over sorry so when she comes back and then she sees her mojo dojo casa house um instead of barbie house he takes over and he kind of gives a taste of her own medicine and is like hey my house now and i'm having a guy's night and all the guys are like hanging out they're drinking beer they're watching they're watching on the tv like horses and like trucks and all that stuff and i'm like this is the funniest thing i've ever seen and i was thinking to myself you know what barbie loki kind of deserved it <laughs> but i think both parties you kind of see a, a theme here it's like you see the extremely feminine side and then you see a extremely masculine side so that kind of plays out now, one thing I loved about this film was the fact that we really, really got to see how females have a harder time trying to adjust to society, um, specifically when Barbie first enters into the world. Because when they enter, when her and Ken go into the real world, um, Barbie originally was supposed to go by herself, but Ken decided to come with her because obviously, as his objective is, it's to take care of Barbie. So he goes along with her and they end up, one of their objectives that they have to do is to wear rollerblades. 
<laughs> and so they enter into this world with rollerblades on and Barbie has this very, very flashy outfit. It's like multicolored, uh, one piece bathing suit. She has like green tights and all of these like men are like cat calling her and like giving her attention and that sort of thing. And I was like, this is going to be awkward. And then at some point she tries to figure out like where her owner is and, um, one of the things that caught my attention was she went up to these group of carpenters and they were all like saying really, really like nasty things to her, but like what they want to do to her and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh, that's gross. And they were saying something sexually oriented and she goes, well, I don't have any genitals. <laughs> and they were like, and the guys kind of paused and they went, that's okay. That's okay. And then Ken looks at them and he goes, I have all the genitals. <laughs> Ken is not like other guys. No, <laughs> not at all. Ken is just really not like other girls or guys. And no, not at all. So anyway, yeah, that's what happened on that. So I forgot to make a side note of that or just a topic about that, but I just thought that was important to me. And then, yeah, so throughout the movie, as it becomes Kenland and Barbie gets to meet her owner, the owner actually goes to Barbie land um, with her daughter and they go to Barbie land to kind of save Kendom. Um, and one of the things that they try to do is they try to be, I think personally, this is kind of manipulative in my opinion, but this is how girls do it best. <laughs> they, the Barbie dolls, they try to like, they group together, but first things first, the daughter, the mother, and Barbie, they try to get the bar the other Barbies to be normal again because they're somehow like fixated about like being waitresses and like serving the men, but not serving themselves. So it's very sexist. Um, so what the mother does is that she tries to like get them all geared and be like, um, hey, men ain't shit. Um, we're going to fix this, you know, and they say all these like things that are like, why are women supposed to do this when men can do that? And they say all these different things. And then the Barbies, they become normal again. And then what ends up happening is they go back to normal and then they decide, okay, let's manipulate the Kens because they go to war with each other and then we'll get our kingdom back. So eventually they did. And how they did it was the Kens would like serenade them with a song or they would like riz them up and then they'll be like, Oh, I'll be right back. And then they end up with another Ken. So they make them hate each other. And I'm like, that's really manipulative. But I think that's also kind of genius because like, that's how women do it. That's what we do, you know, in those aspects, if it has to be necessary. So I just thought that was cool. <laughs> it's a good thing that they planned it out. Because what usually happens there is that women couldn't care less about a dude. And then as soon as another woman even notices he exists, suddenly she does find interest in him. Mm -hmm. she, as soon as another one. So it's a good thing they planned it out and they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Otherwise they would have torn each other apart. Yep. I agree. I agree. Oh, and another thing about Barbie that I absolutely love that I forgot to mention. So I apologize to the people that are like, when is she going to say this? There is a person named weird Barbie. There's different types of Barbies throughout this movie. There's like, 
Um, there's stereotypical Barbie, which is our main Barbie main character. And then there is weird Barbie. Weird Barbie is like those Barbie dolls that you play with a little too hard and you draw like markers on them and you like just throw them in, in your room and stuff like that. That's weird Barbie. Um, weird Barbie kind of founded the whole thing together almost, um, in a sense where she like notices all the patterns going throughout Barbie land. And she tries to like help Barbie go to the real world because Barbie has flat feet. Whereas in Barbie land, they're not like that. They always wear high heels. They're always wearing dresses. They're always like just super cutesy feminine stuff. So, you know, weird Barbie kind of tied the whole thing together, honestly, and also got back Barbie land. So that kind of helps that and sums it up. But I absolutely loved weird Barbie. I thought she was really cool. And I, was that girl that played with my Barbie dolls and would literally like throw them in the room and like (laughs) put like Sharpies on it and stuff like that. But yeah. Um, So we get to the main part of this movie. So when the whole thing becomes back to normal, as the Kens are fighting against each other, we have this beautiful masterpiece called I'm Just Ken. (laughs) And Ken our main Ken does this beautiful number and me and my sister, when we saw this film, we were laughing so hard in that theater. And especially the part where it goes like, can you feel the Kennergy? (laughs) Like it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, And he really just shows like what he wants to be instead of just, helping Barbie because he says like anywhere else I'd be a 10 but then she goes when I see love she sees a friend like it's it's really really hot it's really really tough here's the thing poor Ken (laughs) right poor Ken I know I felt for him the whole time (laughs) he's just trying he's just trying everything and nothing's working Uh uh-huh it's just a bummer, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt bad for him. Anyways, so then when they get back to Barbie land, the mother and the daughter, or the owners um, that have this Barbie, the main character Barbie, they are kind of sort of happy again, and they decide to go back to the real world, and then they fix all of it. Now, this is where I started to get emotional, because near the end of the film... Um, Barbie kind of wants to figure out herself. Um, and she wants to figure out like who she is than just being Barbie, you know? And she, she tries to tell that to Ken as well, because she confesses that she just doesn't have feelings for him. She's just, she just sees him as a friend. And Ken hilariously tries to do that, like toxic masculinity where they like, just don't cry. But like he, you can tell like he's about to cry, but he's like, I'm good. I'm good. Like, you know, but there are two, you know, amazing people in this film. Um, so, you know, Hollywood, they get their best and um, they get the most beautiful, amazing actor in the world. And then they also are able to score Margot Robbie in the same. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's a feat in and of itself. And I think it's just wonderful that they were able to get both. And I'm very proud of Warner Brothers for pulling that off. 
because their institution is oh sinking. They're not paying their writers. They're no, not, they're not. Not they're, at all. They have flop after flop, but at least for their one successful movie the past few years, they managed to um, get the best and most attractive actor in the world. And uh, they even let him have Margot Robbie as a sidekick. So like, that's just, oh my it's God. great. I'm glad they were able to do that. Anyways, uh, I, I kind of sort of disagree. I think Margot Robbie was the perfect choice for Barbie. No, I think that Ryan Gosling is way more beautiful than Margot Robbie. <laughs> it's just the cold hard. Truth. You know what? That's okay. I'm. You guys are all Knuff. We're all Knuff for Ken. Anyways, um, so we You're get Knuff. you are Knuff. Um, so we get to the end now. She tells Ken like it's okay. It's not you. It's me. No, it's not even that. She just said, "You cannot." be Ken to help me. You need to figure out yourself. Like you need to be yourself. Yeah. The power within. Right. And he kind of realizes that and he's like, Oh, okay. So then we head back to Ruth, the CEO of Barbie, the one that plays by Will Ferrell. He comes back into Barbie and he's like, trying to figure out like what this whole mess is and all that stuff. And then Barbie kind of just concludes like, I want to be myself. I'm going to figure myself out and Ken's going to figure himself out. And then she just kind of like tries to figure out like why she has this purpose of being Barbie. And then we finally get to know that Ruth was the inventor of Barbie because Ruth enters Barbie land and she tells Barbie like, I made you. I made this image to be a good place for women to be themselves. And then her and Barbie, they walk into a room, and this is where I completely lost it. Um, Ruth, like, tells Barbie all these things that you need to feel life, you need to feel the way that life is meant to be, which is messy, chaotic, but also beautiful, and also experience the way that Barbie was meant to be experienced, which was motherhood to daughter. And then the cycle continues. It's motherhood, daughter, motherhood, daughter. And then this montage starts of, you know, moms with their daughters, like to newborn, to teenager, to the daughter becoming a mother and then to their daughter. And it just sort of like echoes this pattern. And that part necessarily didn't make me cry, but I can understand why people would get emotional over it. But what made me emotional was when Ken was off for the rest of the, <laughs> off in the sunset. Yes. Sorry, no, you're <laughs> that was great. What made me emotional was the feeling of how life can be so messy and so hard, but yet it can be so like precious at the same time. And I felt like that's what went through Barbie's head in this film. And I just really thought that that was very captivating. And that's when I lost it in the theater. And then at the end of the movie, my sister found me crying and she was like, I got you in 4k. And then she recorded me and she sent it all to my friends. And I was like, okay, yes. that's great. Um, um, yeah. So and they have that depressing song in the credits. It's a really good song, though. No, it's so depressing. I love "What Was I Made For." There's I think, I think it was a beautifully that. written song, There's though. Nothing redeeming about it. I know it's not redeeming, but it's meant to be depressing. It's meant to be sad. 
I don't know. I'm just I'm not a fan of songs that basically just say, hey, you know what? Just jump off that bridge. It's all you can do. Well, sometimes people can have a crisis, and that's okay. Keep it in the recording studio. Yeah. But anyway, then one more thing I'll say before I leave the floor to Oppenheimer. I loved how Barbie was not a feminine movie, but it was more of an equality equality movie. Uh, The reason why I say this is because at the end of the movie, the narrator, who has been narrating throughout the film, says, hopefully we can find a society where men and women can, she didn't say equally help each other, but she said we can help each other in the same circumstance or something like that. And I was like, that is exactly how I feel about today. Like, I wish that men and women would just treat treat each other respectfully. That's exactly how I feel about life. That's how I feel about the way I see life, Um, whether that's politics, sociology, and just life in general. Just That's just the way I see it. And the fact that Barbie, like, captivated that and took that back, it just... It just... It blew my mind, personally. And I that's one of the reasons why I think it was a great film. But, yeah, I loved Barbie. It was a great film. Um, I would definitely go watch it again. Um, and I'm sorry if I missed any important parts, but that's the best way I can say it because I've only seen this film once. Um, but I would scale definitely of, seal it again. Scale one to five, what would you rate it? One to five? I would say a four. There were some things in the movie that I wish it could have been more explained, uh, such as, like, why the how the fuck did Ruth get into Barbie land? Um, there was also some... <laughs> Like she's their god. <laughs> she can go right, but like I wish they could have I wish they could have been like how? Or like how did she do that? She obviously got on the rollerblade, she's got the rocket ship, used it, it was just off screen. <laughs> she followed the formula. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But there's a formula. She created the formula. She did she did though. That's that's so true. So I guess I guess that's erased. But another thing too, and I know that this is kind of stupid. But the other reason why I say a four is because the soundtrack. I love the Barbie soundtrack, but I do not like Lizzo in any way, shape, or form. I you didn't have to go there. Why? I can say that if I want. You all know. I have, I have very heavy feelings. <laughs> she weighs very heavily on my consciousness, and. Uh, it really drags me down. It just um, I, the feeling's kind of crushing, you know. It's like smothering. Oh my god! Um, it's almost like there's too many layers of it, and I just can't like get. I just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, the soundtrack and the movie came out right when Lizzo had those allegations, so. <laughs> I was like, that couldn't have been worse timing, in my opinion. Like, that was, like, bad. <laughs> but, yeah. And I just wish she didn't do, like, the main parts. Like, the main song for Barbie and the one where it goes, like, P, I'm panic. I, I'm scared. I wish that couldn't have been her. It should have been somebody else. But other than that, the film was great. I loved it. So, sorry that I talked so much, guys, but... Now I will give the floor for Oppenheimer, yeah, which, I'll holy ask, crap. I think Lizzo can run the 40-yard dash if the zombie's chasing her. 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5 miles per hour. 
and she'll go, Am I ready? Am I ready? We're going to have some outtakes in this one. <laughs> All right. It's Oppenheimer time. All right, get your Riz on. Get ready for the Schwappenheimer. <laughs> Christopher Nolan pretty easily did it again. There it is. That's the tweet. <laughs> so uh, Oppenheimer was probably it was no definitely the movie of the year so far. It's my number one, I've taken the spot away from John Wick. Um, it was thoroughly perfect. I was able to travel and see it in giant seventy millimeter film and completely immersive. Um, there's almost no better way to watch a movie. And the way that it was shot was just ingenious because um, you have two different perspectives. You have the black and white and you have the color. Um, and with the color shots, it was all from Oppenheimer's perspective. And the camera would be like over his shoulder or very close to his face. It was um, very personal with him. And everything that he would notice and uh, see or feel would be obvious in a scene because it would be color and the camera would be very up in his business. Um, and then he had a lot of moments, too, where uh, most of his emotion that was conveyed was straight into an IMAX camera over the, the color scenes um, with a close-up on his face, which looks great in, like, 70 feet tall on that screen, by the way. Yeah. But, and then the black and white footage was mostly like anybody else seeing Oppenheimer and how they saw him. So Louis Strauss, the uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, would see um, black and white um, infomercials, basically. <laughs> you see this horrible reality where Oppenheimer's like poisoning scientists against him and stuff, and then uh, the color would usually bring in more context to those interactions. And let's just go through some of the characters. Um, the cast was amazing. Um, I've never wanted to be a door before, but <laughs> after seeing Emily Blunt slam one repeatedly, I would love to be a door. Um, she was incredible. Guys, you have no idea how many times you've told me that. But... <laughs> I didn't ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, Cillian Murphy was amazing. His eyes were perfectly conveying like absolute excitement interest, wonder, and dread all in one, and, you know, fear, um, but also righteousness in some cases, and it was very intense and fun to see. There was no Michael Caine in a Christopher Nolan movie, which kind of worried me, but Einstein stole the show easily. Um, there's one scene where he literally appears like Batman, a car drives away and he walks up out of the shadows and starts talking. (laughs) That was absolutely wonderful. Um, so I think Einstein was probably the biggest reason to go see the film, but most of it, uh, centered around the actual creation and detonation of the atomic bomb and the fallout from its creation and, um, the U S having, some of the first major usable atomic weapons, uh, beating what the Germans to it as they thought, and then beating the Russians to it. Thanks mostly to Oppenheimer and his team at Los Alamos. And so the film was very interesting because they didn't directly show anything from the bombings, but 
it was heavily referenced and it was spoken about at great length. And you can really see how from the people's perspective, having made it, the news coming back to them, kind of what it was and what it became and how it split the, the group so badly and how it led to such a complicated effect politically and uh, militarily for the entire world. And it was, it was very interesting to see a modern perspective on the events, but also getting a fair shake of what most of the people at the time were probably thinking and feeling and um, how they were going through the whole process Um, because there's a lot of hindsight that you can apply to it, but there's only so much that you would have actually known for sure at the time, such as, you know, the chances of actually blowing up the entire earth with one detonation near zero (laughs) might burn up the entire atmosphere. Um, Those were some questions that were raised. Uh, Matt Damon was also great. Um, There were honestly, there were too many people to, to list, but I know a lot of people went for Florence Pugh. Um, oh dear! Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a wonderful cast, and it was a, it was a lot of fun to watch, and it didn't get tiring. The it was three hours long, but it felt like two, and it was just completely devastating. <laughs> you could see all this beauty and all these wonderful things, and like the the wonder of science, and then you see like what it can do as well, and what it can turn into, and what one stupid um, callous oaf in the Oval Office can do with weapons of mass destruction is pretty horrifying, <laughs> as Gary Oldman showed us. So that was um, that was a really enlightening scene if for people who wouldn't already have guessed that. <laughs> so for most people, it was just like, oh, yeah, that sounds like the U.S. government um, happily dropping bombs to make people happy in other places. Everybody smile. So it was very tense and the whole thing was really tied together by the soundtrack because I think it was the most beautiful part and, but it also felt like an energetic part of the film. They kind of took from the Hans Zimmer playbook of what he's doing with Dune where he's kind of making his music like slide into the film where parts of his music actually become um, used in the film like props. So the big horns, um, when or the I think Arrakis, when the Arrakis clan is moving into the yes. yeah, so they, he's it was the it was the landing part of Arrakis. There's a whole ceremony. Yeah, they were all yelling, "The the Messiah!" Mm-hmm. They were going life of Brian on um on poor Timothy. So Paul Atreides, yeah, yeah, but the house of Atreides was landing, and then the horns you hear are actually from the soundtrack, and they were in the music, and so. This film was pretty similar. They used only the violin, but they used it in such a wide range that it felt like you had a bunch of different instruments wrapped up into it. And he would have these genius scales where you would start with a high note violin and a low note, and then they would eventually meet in the middle as they're scaling up and down, uh, respectively. So it was very um, wonderful to listen to, especially with the IMAX and all the beautiful giant shots covering the entire screen. The whole, the whole wall, basically. Um, it was very immersive, and I was only a few rows back from the front, so I really got a, a big, uh, massive view. And yeah, the way that it was shot, though, was just incredible. I can't believe I saw this on a smaller screen, and 
I can't believe that to watch it again, I'll have to see on a smaller screen. It'll be a big shame when I do because it just looks so beautiful in the 70 millimeter IMAX presentation. It was just too wonderful. And I could see it probably three or four times in that format uh, before I would get tired of it. It was amazing. And uh, the ending was very stark and realistic and <laughs> familiar tale for most people who know more about the, the way the game is played than the average person. Um, and the what ha- what went on behind closed doors to assure the reputational destruction of Oppenheimer at the time, uh, back when uh, Strauss was trying to get onto Eisenhower's cabinet. So it was uh, it was very it was very obvious. Um, you saw Strauss planting articles in Time Magazine because he's friends with the the. Uh, editor um, to boost himself. You saw him um, trying to get the witness list tons of times, um, trying to have an influence over the testimony there, and just desperate to have the country believe what he wants them to believe about Oppenheimer so that he can consolidate more power. And um, yeah, he had paranoid delusions about Oppenheimer turning. Um, Einstein and scientists against him and he was very stilted by Oppenheimer's um, mocking during a a few years earlier they were they had a, a hearing on isotopes and Strauss got embarrassed by Oppenheimer so he never forgave him and all of those kind of just snowball into a perfect storm of um, subterfuge and hatred and bullshit and you just see how Things really do happen when certain people in Washington want power and want to use it at the expense of everyone and anyone else. Um, And they name drop Kennedy. One of the first people who voted against Strauss's appointment was um, Senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. so I'm low-key kind of hoping Nolan tackles JFK in his next movie. That would be an amazing <laughs> film. Imagine that in IMAX. Like, Oliver Stone did it in 91, but that was off of the information of the day. Now we now have a ton more declassified documents surrounding the case. It would be really interesting to see it revisited, especially by someone with the caliber of Nolan and the, just the technical skill. And he's also the only guy that gets the IMAX cameras rented out for, for an entire film. Uh, nobody else really gets those. So that would be stunning to see. But the story was amazing. It encapsulated the book um, pretty perfectly. American Prometheus. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. But if anyone wants to see an Abridge version, uh, this film is easily a 5 out of 5 um, movie of the year. I will not be shocked if it scoops up a bunch of award season trophies next winter. Yeah. Um, there's really, there really just aren't many people providing films of this caliber. Like besides probably Ridley Scott, um, Martin Scorsese, a very short list. And Nolan was voted like the best director of the past 25 years. And I think he earned it. 
because he never misses, pretty much never misses. Um, some of my favorite ones from him were their Prestige. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody loves the Dark Knight trilogy. He absolutely knocked um, Interstellar out of the park. It's the most beautiful movie I've ever seen, <laughs> technically speaking. Um, yeah, so it's it's just another one in the holster. And I'm only excited to see what he does next. Um, how he writes his scripts next because he switched up to a personal style. In this one, he instead of using stage directions, he was using um, personal directions. Like He wrote it in first person because um, he really wanted to get into the mindset of this being a story from Oppenheimer's perspective and him as if he was narrating it. And he said that it actually unlocked better ways for him to shoot his scripts because now he people don't skip over the technical directions part he actually really makes you want to read the entirety of the script so that you feel uh, like you're not missing anything any of the dialogue or anything that Oppenheimer's like thinking or saying so I thought that was very cool Um, yeah there's really nothing I could have asked from this film more than what it gave and he keeps just pushing the boundaries of what's possible with filmmaking uh, film scores and with the IMAX projection and the shooting. So I thought it was incredible. I think Oppenheimer was like, I saw Oppenheimer too. Uh, I was lucky enough to go with you to the, to the IMAX theater and oh my God, it was so beautiful. That whole film was just incredible. What he said and all those words combined is just great. But I just wanted to say this because I thought this the whole time when I saw the movie. The one thing that I absolutely adored about Oppenheimer was the fact that any time that something catastrophic happened or anything that shifted, it was like silent. For example, the explosion. Um... It was quiet, but of course, that's just because the light goes first and it's the noise. But I also thought it was really important because when it was like silent, it went to all the perspectives. It was like Oppenheimer and then it was the scientists and then it was um, like the government and then like so so on and so forth. They showed every single person's face. You, you got to see every single person's reaction yes. to the actual ignition. And then you got their reaction when the sound wave hit them. <laughs> And when the force of it was really heard. Which, holy crap, I was so, I mean, like, I'm saying this in literal terms, but I was blown away. (laughs) Like, I. You actually jumped almost out of your seat. I did. It got you. Because, well, what's funny is when I saw Barbie, um, Oppenheimer was playing in the other room and I could hear the explosion. Like, that's how loud it was. So when I went to go see this with you, I went, oh, no, this is going to be really loud. Like, I was like, I better prep myself. And then surprisingly, though, it wasn't that loud. Happened. Yeah, it, it wasn't as loud as I thought it would be. I, I literally went in there thinking I'm probably going to need earmuffs or earplugs. But it, th- it was actually a perfect volume. I never needed anything mm-hmm. like it would not. It was never too loud for me. I don't know about you, but. I thought it was really loud, but not because of the the sound. It was more like the the jolt. It yeah, was like that. It was the it was the sudden unexpectation of like boom, and then it just went off, um, which is crazy. But the one thing, 
too, was the fact that after the explosion happened, when Oppenheimer gave that little conference and everybody was like clapping for him and they were like we did it we made an atomic weapon yes you like know we're... stomping their feet and yeah they were like stomping they feet were making stuff. the same chain reaction that you see through the whole film because in the very beginning you see him looking at raindrops hitting uh pond and the ripples in the in the pond mm-hmm. you see um like crackles and of light he keeps uh cutting away to those um what he's seeing in his head and he's staring in a pond with Einstein watching the ripples there too. And mm-hmm. you hear um, noises. The violins are constantly making like a, a quick reverberating noise in many of the songs. Yeah. And then they're stomping their feet. So the they keep showing chain reactions and um, the shaky, unstable nature of the atomic um, <laughs> setup. You can, it's like you can feel atoms like, pulsating it's really cool yeah throughout the film you could see montages of atoms moving and then the universe moving but i think that's what captivated oppenheimer in his mind it was because it was like that abstract and it was yeah. that he was like that smart Their feet were like a trigger yeah. for that though so when they're stopping they're making the same noises it's kind of like the noise he's been hearing in his head so then he's actually in sync with it yeah so then he stops sure. hearing it because if it was jarring to him it would have been like a different kind of sound but because they were stomping to the exact beat of what he's been hearing in his head for years anyway he literally just kind of tunes them out and you only hear him you know saying his speech and then you see them standing but you don't hear them cheering or anything or clapping all you hear is like seats being pushed as they stand up yeah and then he's he hears the boom um of them at towards the end of that speech as he's leaving the room and he like hallucinates that he steps into a charred dead body <laughs> and he yeah. sees bodies being blown by his bomb like he's just yeah it's when, like traumatic for him that's what i was gonna say because that whole scene like my heart like just exploded like i was just like oh my god like can like can you imagine being oppenheimer like making an atomic weapon then realizing that the government's going to take it away from you and they're going to kill a bunch of people. Like, that's insane. Like, it was also for... feeling the pressure, thinking if I don't do this, the Nazis will, and they'll bomb every and they'll single bomb country everybody. because they think that you're harboring Jews or whatever. They'll bomb everybody. So, mm-hmm. he, the and they were, they kept immense. saying Russia, yeah, Russia, yeah, the Russia. Russians but the pro- here's the thing though um, at the time when World War II was occurring, Russia was allies. Yeah, they um, were very reluctant allies on the U.S. front. <laughs> and then as soon as the war ended, throughout the 50s, Eisenhower and all the Republican administrations were in super war effort. <laughs> they switched yeah. right over to attacking Russia and the Red Well, it's Scare because of the McCarthy whole... And all that, the commie commie this. And yeah, it just... and the Iron Curtain thing and yeah, all that and stuff, yeah. The military-industrial complex was desperate for another huge enemy to make people be afraid of so that they can propagandize them and start a war and make money was Russia immediately the next biggest threat because they helped knock over Hitler so suddenly he's like oh we got to go after them yeah it's like almost next target it's like those political cartoons where I don't know if, if any of you have seen this but it's the one where um Stalin and Hitler are like near each other and they have guns in the on their backs um yeah. it was kind of like if you took Eisenhower and Stalin, it would still work because I feel like that's, that was their relationship was 
like, okay, yeah, we're, we're on the same side here, but let me have a gun on my back just in case, you know, like it was just kind of Yeah, bad. we did not trust Russia. No, not one all. bit. Um, but anyway, so, and then we yeah. we moved to stab them in the back as soon as Germany fell, because so then we knew the next biggest target is Russia. Yes, for sure. Um, another thing, too, was the fact that because of the silence and when the seats went up and everything, that really, like, blew my mind. And then he started seeing, like, all these, like, dead bodies in his head. Then the part where he was put in that room and he saw all of, like, the pictures of Japan when it got hit. And I was like... He couldn't even look up at the projection. No, he couldn't. We weren't... The, the camera never saw it, so the audience never gets to see it. But um, yeah, his group was shown... The results of not just the bomb, but also the radiation. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I've seen those pictures. It. They're pretty. They're pretty fucking nasty. Yeah, they're horrifying. They're terrifying. It's, it's inhumane and um, completely insane that that ever happened. Yeah, it just I, I the one that I remember. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's the one where like the kid. It's like a guy. He has a bike, but you can see the literal shape of it because of the explosion. It's so sad. <laughs> like it, it's crazy, but I mean, nonetheless, the film was amazing. I loved it. And I think the way that Christopher Nolan made this film was spectacular. And I will most likely go see it again for sure. You need to see Barbie now. <laughs> you need to go see Barbie. Is it enough? It is Kenoff. All right. You are Kenoff. I'll watch Barbie. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> I got the gun behind my back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that pretty much sums up thoughts because if I should have an after hours episode where I just sit down and talk about why Oppenheimer is like the most perfect mirror reflection in many ways. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, why it should make you feel like uh, the human race is mass suicidal but yeah that's like depressing that. for the main episode somebody scrolling on Spotify listens to this and they're like oh great <laughs> <laughs> well maybe it's for the people that like the dark humor and they like humor there's nothing humorous about it I know it's nothing there's humorous, nothing funny about that people like to do that it's their way to I'm, I mean, like, when you watch this film, you're basically going to watch it and then go, oh, so we're pretty much fucked, right? We're all fucked. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're fucked now, yeah. Like, really, really fucked. <laughs> so, I'm probably going to cut that out. But anyway, <laughs> I need a conclusion here. <clears throat> Something I can dig up. Well. Um, a conclusion is... Yeah, Barb. Okay, we're going to give you some Barbenheimer facts. This is how I'm going to close out this episode. With some amazing Barbenheimer trivia. Whatever. I love the internet. There we go. Barbenheimer trivia. 
This is a fire picture, by the way. Oh, yes, wow. there we go. What the hell? It's not even a thing I can do. Fucking hell. Um, test your real history now. Barbenheimer quiz. Where's the quiz? Paywall quiz? Are you serious? <laughs> I will say the the whole like marketing behind Barbenheimer was like ten out of ten. Like they really knew what they were doing. <laughs> they saved the movies. So let's say that Barbenheimer I saved so. movies. Because now people are kind of realizing that a three-hour-long biopic shot almost half in black and white can, you know, without giant murder action sequences and stuff, can make about almost a billion dollars. And it's R-rated, too. So the top two R-rated movies in history are Joker and Oppenheimer. Yeah. So it's trying to give Joker a run for its money. It probably won't catch up, but it'll get close, which is very interesting. So, I mean, if that can be successful, then there are a lot of things that could be successful that the stupid studios are, think are non-profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Barbie proves that people like going to the movies to see toys. So we need more Lego movies. Where are they? That's what I learned from that. Um, yeah. So I hope everyone has a safe, non-explosive Labor Day weekend. Uh, cling to your loved ones while you can into life because we're probably all going to die soon. So, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, fuck off. I'm done. You guys are Kanaf. Don't forget. <laughs>